you turn with me in your Bibles this time to Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, and we're taking up the second chapter this morning. Luke chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring unto you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he bless it to us this morning. We take out, friend, as we seek to understand the chronology of the Gospels, this one history of the life of Christ that is given to us by the four evangelists, We come, of course, to that moment of Christ's birth. Now, we said before, as we looked at the verses before, verses 1 to 7 of Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, that Luke gives us details that we can't miss. There are no extraneous details in the Word of God. Every single detail matters. And what's striking, of course, about that account is that Luke gives us very little detail. He doesn't even give us the date that Christ was born. Even though this is the one to whom the prophets had fixed their hopes and their attentions for many centuries beforehand. And then Luke brings us to this moment. He brings us to what was likely even the very same day or the same night that Christ was born. And he takes us to shepherds. What's striking about this text, friend, is that this is the first proclamation of Christ, of course, after his birth. This is the first time that Jesus Christ is proclaimed after he's been brought into the world and born. And what you see here as you look at this text is that it comes first of all to shepherds. It comes to shepherds. It doesn't come to the palaces. It doesn't come to those who are well in the world. It doesn't even come first of all to the temple in Jerusalem. It comes first of all to people who were accustomed and even expected to be in the elements among the beasts, 
It comes to people who are not well off. It comes to people who are, socially speaking, well without the mainstream. It comes to them first. And I want you to notice, friend, that Luke is very careful to give us the manner in which this proclamation is made. As you saw here in the ninth verse, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. What Luke tells us here is that the glory of the Lord is what attends this proclamation. In other words, friend, these angels, of course, as all of those who are unfallen are, are only doing the bidding of God. This is heaven's proclamation of Christ. This is heaven's proclamation of the Lord Christ who's now been born. And note what you see at the end of the ninth verse. Again, the inspired writer tells us this, they were sore afraid. You see, beloved, as you look at this text, we're immediately confronted with something that we can't miss. These gospel writers are going to set before us an incarnate Christ. A Christ who is entering into from his birth and a state of humiliation. And yet we're supposed to understand that when that glory is manifest, when the glory of God is manifest, here is how creatures respond. They respond with trembling. You see, friend, the gospel writers do not know the kind of God that the Western world does today. A God that they can form into their own likeness. A God who is not so glorious as to deserve trembling and fear. Luke doesn't know that kind of God. When the glory of the true God appears, Luke tells us those who were unexpecting found themselves sore afraid. But then you find, of course, not only the manner. Luke gives us the proclamation itself. In the face of this moment, this moment when heaven seems to be breaking in, you have this command. And it is a command, the third of its kind. Fear not. Fear not. Well, friend, just think for a moment how powerful that is. Heaven seems to be breaking down. God, who is holy, God most high, is now revealing something to creatures of the earth. And you remember, of course, how men have responded of old. When this kind of glory was manifest, what attended it? Friend, you remember Manoah and his wife as they saw the theophany, as God seemed to appear in the form of the angel. Manoah said, we are going to die because we've seen God. Friend, you remember even at Sinai's foot, after the giving of the law was done through the theophanic voice, you remember how the people of Israel responded. Don't allow him to speak to us any longer. Trembling, they said. Not just at the thunder, not just at the lightning, but at the representation of God breaking in. And then you have these words. Fear not. Friend, if we are careful readers of the scripture, these words should surprise us. If we know anything of the glory of God, these words should surprise us. But the command comes. And what you have here then is the reason for the command. It says here, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Those words, good tidings, are one in the Greek. It's the word evangelion. It's the word from which we get the word gospel. And so the angels are literally saying, I bring you the gospel of great joy. That's what the angels are proclaiming. And friend, you can't miss this. The argument is very basic. The reason why they're not to fear when heaven breaks in and makes itself known to creatures of the dust is because a gospel is to be proclaimed. 
the angels are saying, it is for this reason you are not to fear. I come bringing you the gospel. And what you find here also is that this gospel is centered in verse 11 on one figure. It's a striking thing what Luke is telling us here, that as the angels are making this first proclamation, what is the gospel according to Luke? What is the gospel according to heaven? Well, friend, it is just Jesus Christ. It centers on him as he is the very embodiment of the gospel itself. Here is that gospel. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then what you find, shockingly, is the sign. Of course, these shepherds stand here. They stand in the pasture land among their sheep, and, and they stand there trembling at this very clear representation of glory. And friend, as they stand there, they're told that the Lord has been born. This Lord of glory. The anticipation of the godly through the millennium. He's been born. Well, perhaps the shepherds are thinking, of course he's born in a palace. We need to go to the Herods if we're going to find him. We need to go to those places where all the godly are gathered. Perhaps we need to go to the temple. No, note what he says here in the 11th verse. There's a sign that they're given. It shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Friend, you can't miss the gospel paradox that's here. They're surrounded by visible glory. So much so that they tremble. And yet they're told that if they're going to find the Lord, they're going to find Him lying in a trough and swaddled like a child. They're going to find a real baby. One that needs to be protected from the elements. One that could not even find a place to rest even in Bethlehem. Let alone in the palaces of the great ones of the world. It's a gospel paradox that we can't miss. And if we're careful readers, friend, even this text, though it's so familiar to us, would surprise us. This is the very opposite of what we might expect. Now what do we have here? Friend, as I said before to you as we began, that none of the gospel writers give us extraneous details. Every single detail and so every single point of emphasis is crucial. It is inspired. This is God's testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the emphasis? You can't miss this, can you? As Luke presents to us literally the most important moment in human history, what does he highlight? Well, friend, he takes us to a stable. He takes us to a manger. He takes us to a child that needs to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. In fact, twice Luke mentions the swaddling of Christ. And then he takes us to shepherds. The lowliest of the social sphere. He takes us to men who were not regarded by the world as worth time. What's striking, friend, is if you contrast Luke's gospel with Matthew's just for a moment, how does Matthew's begin? Matthew begins by giving us a kingly chronology. He gives us a kingly genealogy. And then he immediately takes us to Joseph, who is the rightful heir to the throne at that time. And then from there, where does he take us? Well, then in Matthew 2, he takes us to kings. They're the ones who Matthew tells us are going to attend Christ two years after his birth. 
These two writers are writing of the same Christ, but they're emphasizing two very different points. Matthew would have us see the incarnate Christ as king. Where Luke would have us see just how deep Christ stepped into humiliation. He would give us a lively picture, a vibrant picture of Christ's humanity. This Christ is swaddled, laying in a manger. And the first ones who come to adore him are shepherds. What we can't miss either, friend, is also in this text, you have a wonderful summary, a kind of compendium of the gospel. Note how the angels proclaim this gospel to these shepherds. Unto you, he writes, is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And he says before that friend that these are glad tidings that are given to all and to all the people. Now, of course, we could say that in one sense, immediately this is to the Jew only. I mean, this is what Christ says, isn't it? I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then toward the end of his ministry, you remember what Christ says. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so the all people that are here really should be seen not just as all of the Jews, but really all of those who belong to the flock of God, Jew and Gentile alike. But what you can't miss is how the, how the angels emphasize what belongs to the shepherds. Friend, if we miss this, we miss so much. Note how this proclamation is made. He says here, I bring you good tidings. I bring you, these lowly shepherds in their flock, I bring you this gospel. And then, beloved, if we can't miss, if we can't grasp the significance of this, we're in a bad way. In verse 11, he says, unto you is born this day. Christ the Lord. It's a fulfillment, of course, of what the prophet had always anticipated. Unto us, says the prophet, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. It accords with what Isaiah says later. The Lord says, I, the Lord, have called thee, that is Christ, in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. He goes on to write, I will punish thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth and cause to inherit the desolate heritages. And friend, what we can't miss here is that what the angels are saying is unto you. What the prophets are saying is unto you. Christ is born. Not only unto Mary. Not only unto Mary and Joseph as a family. Do you grasp the significance of that? We don't say this of any other person. We don't say this of any other child that's born into the world. They're born unto another family. No, but he says here that Christ is born. The Lord of glory is born unto you. To you, shepherds. To you, the lowliest of all. Friend, what we see in this text, and this is our theme for this morning, is just this. That Christ is given even to the lowliest of sinners. Christ is given even to the lowliest of sinners. And I want us to see that briefly under three headings. I want us to see the person that is given, the purpose for which he is given, and the way in which we can think of Christ as truly given. 
And so first of all, the person. What you can't miss, friend, is that the angels are very clear. Christ is born unto us. And again, friend, the shepherds here, of course, stand as representatives for all of those who would receive the gospel gladly. The whole flock of God. Given unto us. But what's striking, friend, is he does not say that he was given as a sacrifice unto us only. Christ himself. The whole Christ in life and in death and in resurrection is given to us. He died but was also born and lived for us. The teaching is so very basic. It's that the whole Christ is given to souls. His person, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And what is that person? What is that person that's been given here? Well, friend, the shepherds themselves were told, it is Christ the Lord. Christ, Adonai, Christ, who is the Lord of glory incarnate. Oh, friend, we don't think on this much, but we ought to. What did the shepherds hear at this point? They heard that the one who is the eternal and the infinite Son of God was given to them. The one who is always the delight of his Father. The one who from all of eternity was holy. The one whom the angels, the seraphim, and the cherubim beheld and cried, holy, holy, holy. This one of infinite worth, infinite loveliness. Friend, this one who by his own nature was worthy of all the worlds combined. These shepherds are told that it was unto you is he born. Unto you is this Christ given. A person of inestimable worth. Friend, if we really understood what this text is teaching, if we really grasped in some deep way what it is to say that Christ is born unto sinners, that is given to sinners, the whole Christ, given Himself to people. Friend, would we be able to say anything in the face of such truth? Would we be able to receive it so coldly? Would we be able to be so distracted? But unto you, he says, this Christ is born. And beloved, as you look at this text, you can't miss either that the text here emphasizes the humiliation of Christ. Unto you is born this Christ who will cross that infinite divide. Unto you is born this Christ who will take upon himself the form of a servant, though he is God incarnate. Unto you he is born. He's given to you as he will become the lamb who is slain. He's given unto you as he becomes a man of sorrows. He's given unto you as he walks this world, not even having a place to lay down his head. He's given unto you even in his humiliation. And you can't miss either, friend, that this whole Christ is also given unto you in his exaltation. The scriptures read, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. This one who would span this infinite divide and take upon himself the form of a servant. The shepherds are also told it belongs to them. He belongs to them. 
But who all but what else belongs to them, but also Christ in his exaltation. Christ as he possesses that name that is above every name. Christ as he is the one whose name is above all those named either in the world or in heaven. Christ is given to them. Friends, we look at this text, we have to say that no king could give such a princely son as has been given to the people of God. No prince such as this, no kingly son such as this could ever have been given. And what you find here, friend, is even more than that. That this one who intrinsically is worth all of the worlds combined, who is of an infinite and inestimable worth, he's been given to lowly sinners. Given to them. Hear the deep logic of the apostle. He that spared not his own son. This son, this holy and highly exalted son, This son who took upon himself the form of a servant, though God incarnate. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Friend, if Christ has been given unto you, says the apostle, what is every other creaturely good in comparison? That brings us to our second point. For what purpose is the Son born unto us? We're told here that he is born unto you. And then we're also told this. In the 11th verse. That which is born. He who is born is born in the city of David. A Savior. Which is Christ the Lord. Friend in other words what you have here is. The proclamation that Christ is given unto sinners. As a Savior. His purpose is to save. And, friend, in what sense are we supposed to understand that he is given as a Savior? First of all, we need to recognize that he is given as a Savior even in his life. Here's what the Scriptures read. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. But why was he sent and made under the law, the Apostle tells us? He tells us this. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. He was given as a Savior to sinners even in his life. In fact, Christ himself says this. I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. His life is lived as a Savior. His whole life is given as a Savior to sinners. Friend, it's not just the case that Christ died for his people. But he lived for them. He was given a he was given them as a savior even in the manger. He was a savior for them given even in his estate of humiliation before the cross, before Gethsemane. But of course he was also given as a savior at his death. Christ as he looks to the cross in John 17 as he's praying to the Father prays thus, for their sakes I sanctify myself. For their, for their sakes, I set myself apart as a sacrifice. For their sakes, he says. For their sakes. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews, as he takes up Psalm 40, illustrates this point powerfully. 
The writer there quotes Psalm 40, reading, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. But a body, says the writer, thou hast prepared me. What's striking is, friend, as you read that text, Hebrews 10, he says these are the words that Christ uttered when he came into the world. A body thou hast prepared me. To what end? To be the sacrifice. And it wasn't just the case, of course, that Christ was given as a slain Savior only. Christ was given as a Savior in His resurrection. The Apostle writes, Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. In both cases, Christ is given. And neither is it just the case that He was raised, friend, as a Savior. But even His session in heaven now, He is still given to His people as a Savior. He ever liveth, says the Apostle. It's a striking phrase. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 And what is he doing, friend, as well? As he makes intercession, what is his calling? How is he still functioning as a Savior given to the people? The Apostle writes in Acts 5 this, Him that is Christ hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a Savior. And here's the purpose. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Christ as a whole Savior, a whole Christ is given to sinners. In his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Given to apply to them the fullness of salvation. Friend, in other words, when you come to that text that we so love, Galatians 2.20. Though principally it speaks, of course, of the sacrifice of Christ, there's no reason for us not also to make an application to the whole of Christ when we write, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself in every regard for me. Gave himself as a life to be lived for me. A death to be died, a death to die in my place. A resurrection. To declare a true, a full sacrifice accomplished. An ascension to oversee the application of all that has been purchased. Friend, when we come to this, there's a very basic thought that we can't miss. If it is a whole Christ that we're, if it's a whole Christ that has been given to us, the scriptures hold out to us that Christ is a limitless wealth. A limitless well from which we can always draw and nothing, nothing for a poor and undone sinner will be, will be lacking. What we have here is an infinite source of full commodity. What we have here is a Christ who can meet every true and spiritual need. A Christ who is sufficient in all things for those who would come to him. Friend, you draw down on Christ. You draw down on Him to satisfy fully what you require in this life. And I want you to know, friend, you've not drawn down even a fraction of what is available in Him. Even those who are in glory now, as the old writers used to say, when they stand and they peer upon Christ, what are they saying? Have they for the thousands of years that they've been there before Him, have they exhausted His inestimable worth and His benefits? No, they say the half has not been told yet. The half has not been told. He's a limitless well for sinners. He's an infinite source of fullness and of grace. His whole life, friend, 
all of his work has been given. And this one that has been given is a full Savior. A fully sufficient Christ. And beloved, the application is so very basic. And the shepherds should have heard it so clearly. The sinner is to come to Christ for every need. And he's to seek no aid elsewhere. Every true and eternal need. He is to find it only in Christ. There's only one Christ that has been born for the people of God. Only one. And only through him should they expect aid. But thirdly and finally we come to the possession. In what sense can we say that Christ has been given as the scriptures speak in one voice univocally? How can we speak of Christ being given in some sense possessed by sinners? Well, friend, first of all, you only need to look at how the Scripture speaks of the calls to come to Christ. We read of it in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Come ye, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. You see what he's saying there? Come and buy. Take hold as though it's yours. Possessed, really. Or hear Christ Himself. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me. Come unto me and take all of mine. Or take this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst Come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Friend, do you see how all of these calls are to come and to take? Come and to take Christ. Come and to take Him and to have Him as yours. That's the warrant, friend. That, that's the real reason why any sinner can approach. It is because God has offered Him to pray. God has offered Christ to sinners. The offer is God's, not man's. And so when the Apostle offers Christ in these ways, what does he say? Well, friend, he says that we're beseeching you in God's stead. Be reconciled to Him. But even the Scriptures speak of the way in which Christ is possessed. He's possessed by faith. The Apostle writes here that Christ dwells in the hearts of believers by faith. He dwells as one who is in the believer already by faith. And he's also possessed, friend, as a surety. Though we'll think of this more this evening, friend, we think of this both in terms of our justification and our sanctification. The Apostle writes, But of God are ye in Christ Jesus. And note what he says. Note what he says. Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Friend, he is possessed by the godly in all of these ways. Made unto them, given unto them really as wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. But oh beloved, we can go still deeper, can't we? The scriptures speak of Christ as possessed as a husband. Where there's a mutual possessing. The church says to Christ, my beloved is mine. And I am his. 
She reverses it toward the end of the book. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Oh, do you see, friend, how the church thinks of Christ? She is his, and he is hers. Friend, there is this mutual possessing that the scriptures hold out. And friend, if the scriptures didn't say this, it would be too bold for us sinners to presume so. But here the scriptures speak. Christ really belongs to the believer. Christ has really been given to his people. Such that she can say, my beloved is mine. And friend, the apostle goes even one step further in this analogy. And we can't miss this. He doesn't say that marriage is a kind of analogy for the church. He says that the marriage between Christ and his church becomes an analogy for marriage on earth. Do you see how the reverse emphasis is so potent? It is Christ possessing his church and the church being wedded to Christ. That he says is the archetype of all marriage. Friend, the best marriage, he says here on earth, is only a pale comparison to the archetype of what marriage is. He writes this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And note this. And gave himself for it. He did not give money. Not a price. Not another creature. He gave himself for it. Beloved, what does this lead us to as we close? It ought to lead us to this moment where we cry with the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth, whom do I desire besides thee? Whom do I have in heaven, he says. What other claim could I make for another thing, another being, who would be greater than this Christ who is given unto me? There is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Of course, the question as we leave this text, this text that teaches us that unto us is born Christ, the Lord, is that question. Will you take such a Christ? Will you take such a Christ? Will you take him as a true Savior? And briefly, friend, there are three marks that even come from chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel that tell us if we've done so. Friend, these are a people that are acquainted with the glory of God, acquainted with the glory of Christ, and so they are a people who are made meek. And so the prophet writes, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, who with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Note what the prophet emphasizes here. Friend, to take Christ really, to take this Christ really, requires meekness. If we have really come to this Christ, we know something of divine glory. And so we know something of our own creatureliness. We are made weak. Who does Christ dwell with? Those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. These are a people also who are to be conscious of sin. Friend, why do they need a Savior? If they're not conscious of sin, friend, the offer of a Savior is entirely redundant. And so, friend, if you've taken hold of Christ, you are conscious of sin. 
In other words, you're conscious of your need for a Savior. You're conscious that your good works will not suffice. You're conscious that being here on the Lord's Day will not be sufficient before the holy law of God. You're conscious keenly that only a full Christ will be sufficient. And finally, friend, you're also one who takes hold of the offer. You look to those offers that we read and so many others in Scripture as as that which your whole life hangs upon. Friend, those offers of the Gospel are dear to you if you've come to Christ. When He says, come unto Me in His Word, you say that these are the reasons why I might come. I come at His invitation. Yes, He is a holy God, but He's offered to Me, even to Me, that I might come to Him and find a full a full Christ. Those are the marks, beloved, of those who have come to this Christ. They are those who are acquainted with the glory of God, their need for Christ, and who love these offers of Christ to them. So friend, we can't miss this either, that also in this text, we find here how Christ comes to the lowly. Note how the shepherds are going to find Christ the Lord. They might wonder, can I, who've never really been in the presence of a king, how could I come before the one who is the Son of God incarnate? All but here the angel said, here is how you'll find him. A babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You see, friend, he comes in his condescension to the lowest of sinners, offering himself even to them. Even even in his estate of humiliation. As one commentator put it on this text, John Calvin writes, This method of proceeding, which might appear to the view of man absurd and almost ridiculous, the Lord pursues toward us every day. Sending down to us from heaven the word of the gospel, he enjoins us to embrace Christ crucified, and holds out to us signs of earthly and fading elements which raise us to the glory of the blessed immortality. Having promised us spiritual righteousness, he places before our eyes a little water. By a small portion of bread and wine, he seals the eternal life of the soul. But if the stable gave no offense whatever to the shepherd, so as to prevent them from going to Christ to obtain salvation or from yielding to his authority while he was yet a child, no sign, however mean, in itself, ought to hide his glory from our view or prevent us from offering to him lowly adoration now that he has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. You know what Calvin is saying is so very basic. What we're doing this morning is we are sitting under the word of God and under its preaching which the world says is foolishness. It's just a man speaking. And so they say it's a small and a mean thing be gathered here. But even, friend, as we look at the stable, we find this, that this is the very means, the very way that God often communicates himself. The lowliest of means. The most unsuspected of instruments. The very ways that the people of God find Christ by faith. And friend, if you're here this morning, you've been offered to take hold of Christ afresh, not by me. Not by any preacher. Friend, even through these means that seem so lowly in the eyes of the world, it is Christ who offers himself to you. It's what the Apostle says. 
The preached word of God faithfully done is the voice of Christ. It is Christ, friend, who calls you to himself this morning. Not me. And so take Christ as he's offered. Take him again and again. Friend, you will never, you will never be able to take him more and more than is sufficient. Apply him more and more. Cry for his application more and more. Because he's offered to you. Born unto you. Says heaven. Given unto you. In his fullness. For your every real and true need. Take hold of Christ. Friend. And find him a whole Christ. A sufficient savior. Amen.